Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Simon Mills. I'm a senior associate at the Zien Group, and I would like to welcome you all to today's FS Club webinar, where we're going to be discussing natural climate solutions, <coughs> seeing the woods for the trees. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jeffries, who has over 30 years experience in sustainability in both the public and the private sectors. As always, the agenda for this webinar is very simple. Following my introduction, Paul is going to make his presentation and then we're going to have uh, a question and answer discussion. Now, I'm afraid that you are all muted, but you are able to submit your questions to Paul through the chat tool to the right of your screen. Please do chip in at any point in these proceedings. I'm going to be collating your questions and I'll put them to Paul at the end. As with all our FS Club webinars, we're going to be recording this session and you're going to be able to access Paul's slides and presentation at a later date. Now, before we move on, I really must thank FS Club members who've opened up our webinar series to the public. With their help, since March of 2020, we have held over 300 of these events on topics as diverse as money laundering, the metaverse and high salinity agriculture. The FS Club is the premier global executive knowledge network for technology and finance, where members and their guests can meet over a glass of wine to debate key issues which impact on financial services, technology and society. It's very much like a 21st century of the city's 17th century coffee houses. And so, without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's speaker. Paul is currently a non-executive director of the Carbon Trust and program lead for sustainability and climate change at the UK's National Committee on China. He recently stepped down as BP's global head of policy and partnerships, where he managed the company's positions and relationships on energy, climate and the environment for over a decade. He's been honoured by the Queen as a pioneer to the life of the nation for services to the environment. Paul, welcome. Please tell us about natural climate solutions. Well, uh, thank you, Simon, and welcome everyone to my talk on natural climate solutions. Um, what I mean by seeing the wood for the trees um, is that while I'm not really going to try and give you any new information about NCS, what I will try and do is give you a new perspective um, on NCS. So first slide, please. So what is NCS and is it really a win-win-win? <clears throat> so NCS are human activities that have the effect of increasing carbon storage in the biosphere. And that can either be in the terrestrial biosphere or the marine biosphere. It can be above ground or it can be below ground. And at least theoretically, there are benefits for three of the most pressing existential problems that humanity faces. One of them is tropical forest loss, one of them is biodiversity loss, and the biggest one, of course, is climate change itself. And what I want to do today is examine these benefits in a little bit more detail, including their potential scale and the cost of delivering them, look at some of the risks of delivering them, and then ask the question of whether we're getting the balance between the risks and the benefits right in order to deliver the maximum sustainable NCS potential. And I'll say upfront that I think the answer to that question is no. So moving on. So for the next three slides, there's no need to look at the detail of the charts or the data. 
they're all intended simply to illustrate the messages in the red boxes, which for forests are essentially that by most metrics, either progress is going too slowly or we are actually moving backwards. And that's in spite of major commitments, major efforts, a lot of time and a lot of money being spent in this area. Moving on to biodiversity, it's more or less the same story for biodiversity loss and perhaps an even worse story in that by most metrics we are actually going backwards in spite of major commitments, a lot of effort, a lot of time and a lot of money being spent. And finally moving to climate change, Again, no need to go into the details of these charts. You've all seen them before. But in this case, in spite of immense effort, immense commitment, a lot of time, effort and money, by all major metrics, we continue to move in the wrong direction. And certainly it's the case that we are not on track to reach 1.5 or even below two degrees at the moment. So moving on. How can NCS help deal with these problems and in particular with the climate problem? Well, once again, please don't scrutinize uh, this chart too closely and particularly the numbers in the chart because I actually think the chart is the numbers are wrong. Um, I selected this diagram simply because believe it or not, it is actually the simplest chart I could find that kind of explains the dynamics of, of NCS. Um, and the nuts and bolts are that there are absolutely vast stores or stocks of carbon in the biosphere, in the land and in the sea. Now in nature, those stocks of carbon are in constant flux between the land and the sea and the atmosphere in both directions. And that those so-called fluxes are enormous, much bigger than human um, anthropogenic emissions, but those fluxes are in broad equilibrium. Now, a problem occurs though when human land use, particularly agriculture, forestry, but other land uses as well, which is often referred to as, as AFLU, has the effect of disturbing the natural equilibrium by releasing more carbon from land use change than, than the carbon that's absorbed. Now, it only disturbs the natural equilibrium by a small proportion but this actually accounts for a very large proportion on a net basis for anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, estimated to be up to around a quarter. And what that means is that NCS, i.e. storing carbon in the, in, in the biosphere through uh, land use change, has not just an important role in net zero, it actually has an essential role because first we have to reduce this quarter of net anthropogenic emissions to near zero. And secondly, we have to increase the carbon removal from land use change, which will be necessary at net zero. Next slide. So what is the global carbon mitigation potential of NCS? Um, this slide is taken from a study which is a little bit old now, it's 2017, but it remains for many stakeholders and for me at least the most detailed and balanced assessment of the sustainable potential because it comes from a primarily uh, environmental perspective. And for that reason, it imposes quite significant sustainability constraints 
on the assumptions behind the potential that is seen for NCS at different costs. But in spite of those sustainability constraints, the study estimates that NCS could achieve over 20 gigatons of mitigation in carbon dioxide equivalent terms per year by 2030. And just to put that in context, if you look at the chart on the bottom right of the screen, that's roughly equivalent to all global emissions from the oil and gas sector, in fact, slightly more than, than that. Now, the study estimates that around half of that could be delivered in a way that they call cost-effectively, which is at less than $100 a tonne. And that equates to a third or more than a third of the mitigation that would be needed to be on track for the Paris goals. Of that, a third would be available at less than $10 a tonne. And half of the potential is from reducing emissions from land use. The other half would be by increasing carbon removals from the atmosphere by land use change. Next slide, please. In terms of the specific types of NCS and the volumes of abatement that could be expected, um, most of it comes from changes to forestry, around two thirds from forestry. The other third roughly divided equally between agriculture and wetlands and around a quarter of the total in all those ecosystems uh, from soil carbon. Now, um, you know, there are other estimates that are higher and lower than this, but as I say, uh, this is considered to be, if you like, one of the best and most balanced estimates. And it's just to give a ballpark order of magnitude sense of the potential. So moving on. But there's more believe it or not. Um, I've already drawn attention to the forest preservation and biodiversity conservation benefits of NCS as well as carbon, but there are other improved ecosystem services from NCS. There's the opportunity for more sustainable livelihoods, there's a preservation of local indigenous cultures, and there are a variety of, of health, food security, medicinal and pharmaceutical benefits as well. So moving on. So given all of these benefits, why isn't NCS happening at scale now? And I think the answer is really as simple as this slide, that as long as we allocate low value to these benefits, then they attract limited finance, either to preserve or to enhance them. And so the key question, next slide please, is how can we change that to attract finance to NCS? Well, the traditional or one approach is simply to regulate directly, either to require certain land, land use changes to happen or to ban certain activities like logging from happening. And direct intervention is necessary, but it's insufficient because by and large it's expensive. Because it's expensive, it's generally politically resisted both by governments who see timber, for example, as a a source of sovereign wealth, but particularly by practitioners on the ground, farmers and foresters who don't want to be told what to do because it will cost them money, generally speaking. And when measures like that are introduced, they are often ignored, um, but they're quite hard to police and enforce. So necessary, but not sufficient to solve um, the forestry, biodiversity, land use emissions problem. Philanthropic giving is another helpful 
um, but insufficient source because even at the kind of Jeff Bezos Earth Fund or Norwegian government grant level for red projects, for example, you know, in the low billions of dollars, while they are significant, they are nowhere near enough to deal with the problem at a global scale, which will require tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, quite literally. So the one lever that does appear to have the potential to deliver um, uh, finance at scale would be to uh, allow NCS to be used for offsetting for industrial emissions, because that would have the effect of bringing carbon pricing to the land sector, at least indirectly. And that could either be done on a voluntary basis to meet corporate targets, or it could be done within regulated cap and trade um, and tax systems. And most of you will be familiar with the fact that this has already happened, um, both in voluntary and in regulated contexts. But given the fact that we've now been trying to do this or looking at doing this for at least three decades, it's happened at a relatively limited scale, certainly relatively um, limited compared with the potential that we saw on the other slide. So next slide, please. The question is, can the current markets that exist, both regulated but particularly voluntary, can the current markets for um, NCS and other forms of offsets be scaled to deliver the kind of potential that we saw was cost-effectively available for NCS um, from the, the slides earlier? Now, looking at the performance of the voluntary carbon markets last year, you might um, be forgiven for thinking that the answer to that question is yes, because driven by COP26 and particularly by commitments made by companies under a program called Race to Zero, the voluntary carbon market did literally explode last year. Um, it went as high as three gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent um, as a volume in the market and a value of over a billion dollars. So very substantial. But because the explosion was from a very small base indeed, it has still ended up at a relatively low level um, in the context of the potential. So 0.3 gigatons relative to 10 or 11 gigatons is obviously relatively small. So looking forward to 2030, an organization called the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, which has a bias towards optimism, I would say, has projected that the market for offsets, including NCS, could increase 15-fold over 2020 levels to as much as two gigatons and a value of $180 billion um, by 2030. You know, very substantial indeed. Some and Trove Research thinks that estimate might be a little bit optimistic um, and has suggested 0.5 to 1 gigaton by 2030. But the point is that these projections, while they are definitely significant and more significant than we're seeing at the moment, they are still very far below the cost-effective NCS potential that is thought to exist. And on the supply side, the Nature Conservancy has estimated a maximum NCS supply of only around 0.3 gigatons, <clears throat> at least out to 2023. So the critical question that I want to answer today is, will the growth that we saw last year in the offsets and NCS market 
be sustained over time or is it going to plateau or fall? And I think that the answer to that question will depend entirely on how society chooses to respond to the sustainability concerns about using offsets and NCS in particular. So if we move on. So what are the concerns about NCS supply and are there solutions? Um, well, forgive me, I don't have time to go through these concerns in detail, but I, I'm not trying to gloss over the concerns because I will acknowledge upfront and openly that the concerns are very real and they must be addressed robustly. But I do think that solutions exist and they can be required through independently verified sustainability standards on the supply side. Now, many of you will know that sustainability standards already exist for both offsets and NCS supply in particular. In fact, there are arguably too many of these standards, but I would argue that they do need strengthening and they probably need consolidating because there are too many. Now, higher sustainability standards will raise costs and prices, um, and that will limit demand to some extent. But I would argue that they are essential because if NCS isn't real in the sense of abating carbon or sustainable, it will simply lose credibility and in fact be worse than useless. So we need sustainability supply standards strengthened. Next slide, please. So what are the concerns about offset or NCS use, i.e. concerns on the demand side and are there solutions there? Well, this is where I think things get more tricky because on the one hand, I think the concerns about how NCS is used are real and they must be addressed and they're broadly as follows. The biggest concern is that NCS or offsets will be used as a so-called get out of jail free card for industry. And that's because they will either dilute corporate ambition or even national ambition at the beginning, and then they will delay or distract attention from the necessary but more expensive direct abatement in industry um, itself. The second concern is that they will be seen as an enduring solution rather than a kind of a bridge to a solution that involves direct abatement. And finally, that there could be double counting um, either between countries or companies or between companies and countries. The difficulty on the demand side, which I don't think exists to such an extent on the supply side, is that there currently are no universally agreed solutions either on how to limit offset use or how much to limit offset use. And the default is something you'll probably be familiar with called the mitigation hierarchy in which you first avoid, then reduce, and only then offset within your own value chain. And the problem with the um, uh, mitigation hierarchy is that it's pretty poorly defined, particularly in terms of the conditions under which you move from avoidance to reduction to offsetting. And as you'll see, offsets are at the bottom of the hierarchy. So we do need clearer rules, and the rules need to be strict. Um, and they're currently being hotly debated in many forums um, listed on the slide. But the key question in those debates is how stringent the conditions or limits on NCS offsets should be. So moving to the next slide. 
The question is, in that debate, are we currently getting the balance right? And, and I would say, no, we're not. Just to be clear, it's a balance on the one hand between a requirement for strict, direct industrial abatement pathways to net zero 2050 with only a limited contribution from offsets, except at net zero where removals can be used, against the need on the other hand for speed, scale and action to reduce land emissions and deliver the forest and biodiversity co-benefits. I mean, at the moment, in the current debate, most of the focus is on climate and carbon and much less on biodiversity and forest loss. Within the climate focus, most attention is on industrial carbon abatement with much less on land carbon abatement. Within the industrial focus, most emphasis is on voluntary action, much less on regulated action. And forgive me, within a focus on voluntary industrial carbon action, there is a very strong emphasis indeed on direct abatement with a limited role for offsets. In fact, in the most stringent thinking, offsets are allowed only as an optional extra and only if on a science-based direct abatement path to net zero 2050. And then within offsets, the emphasis is heavily on removals, which will be required at net zero, and much less on reductions. And what I think about the current debate is that while the focus on climate and direct industrial abatement is, is necessary, it seems to me that the emphasis at the moment is too strict, and that is having negative impacts. On the demand side, the negative impact is that the biggest emitters, the ones who can really move the dial, are struggling to make science-based commitments. And unless that changes, and I hope it does change, but unless it changes, then offsets and NCS simply won't be an option for the very stakeholders who could really make a difference. And that's why I'm concerned that the growth in the voluntary offsets NCS market may either plateau or fall. And that's having a chilling effect on the supply side because potential investors who by and large understand and can manage most of the project risks associated with NCS can't predict demand even within an order of magnitude as we've seen. And that has a deeply chilling effect on the appetite to invest. And I know as a matter of fact that there are billions of dollars of investment looking at this space but hesitating to invest for these reasons. So next slide please. Could more flexibility be introduced that would both promote NCS and preserve carbon integrity? Now, I would say the answer is yes, and this is my proposition. This is the meat of what I'm trying to say today, that if offsets are real and sustainable, and, and I, you have to take that as a given, and that's why I say we need strict sustainability supply standards, but if that is the case, and if an entity, either a company or a country, um, sets a net zero by 2050 target, then I would ask why not allow NCS and offsets as an economic choice, i.e. a first choice on the path towards that target. Now, perhaps you would impose time and volume limits if you were uncomfortable with completely open market, 
but moving towards flexibility would extend carbon pricing coverage to the wider economy, it would accelerate delivery and at a lower cost, and it would have the effect of allowing more time for technology innovation to enable better direct abatement options for industry. The second proposition I would make is that I would do that, i.e. prioritize uh, offsets as an economic choice in the regulatory schemes rather than in the voluntary carbon market. And that's because if the US or China or the EU were to allow this, it would increase demand for NCS and offsets by an order of magnitude overnight, quite literally. Plus the sustainability of supply, guaranteeing that they deliver, um, could be more tightly regulated. And finally, I would say that if that flexibility is too much for some people, then I would urge us at least to consider that kind of flexibility for NCS, because I do think NCS is special and different. It's different first because AFLU emissions, as I've shown, are huge and they must be reduced to near zero or net zero. And right now, there are no other policies to do that, or at least to do it quickly and at scale within the AFLU value chain itself. For some other um, offset value chains, so ozone depleting substances, for example, there are other policies, so you could exclude those, but there aren't. You know, how do people expect that land use emissions are going to be reduced except by this mechanism? We've already seen that NCS co-benefits are enormous, but currently ignored or unrewarded. And finally, NCS reductions, especially avoided tropical deforestation, is needed right now, not in 20 or 30 or 50 years. And they offer the largest, fastest, lowest cost abatement and the most co-benefits. What's not to like? So in conclusion, should we rebalance to a more flexible approach? Well, I would say yes. I would say that if we had unlimited time, if we had lots of options for carbon abatement, and if there were no socioeconomic barriers to abatement, and if we were seeing rapid progress on the ground, then yes, current thinking on tight industrial constraints on the use of offsets might make sense. But the sad reality is that we have no time we have very few options and almost no options for biodiversity or forests. And there are immense socio-political economic barriers to progress. And as we saw, we are seeing almost no progress on the ground. And I would ask, is there any real reason to think that that is going to change quickly, or at least quickly enough to justify current thinking? I would say no. I think it is time to redress the balance. I would retain a strict industrial net zero targets, you know, those are without question, but more flexibility on the use of offsets and NCS in particular on the path to net zero by 2050, because that would, on the other side of the scale, deliver the speed, scale and action to reduce both industrial emissions and land emissions and forest and biodiversity co-benefits. Thank you. Wow, that was absolutely fascinating, Paul. Now, we have got an absolute deluge of questions for you from the audience, uh, but I am going to take 
chairman's privilege and uh, put my own question to you to start with. Um, you mentioned the, the role of effective carbon pricing and delivering NCS. How can we avoid the mistakes that were made with, with CDM and joint implementation post-Kyoto? Um, well, I think uh, we can avoid those mistakes by learning from those mistakes. Um, you know, they, they, they were real, they were made, but they're, they're broadly understood. And for the most part, there are options um, now understood and available for dealing with them. Um, I didn't have time, as I said, to go into detail on the sustainability of supply side. Um, but, um, you know, even problems that are or were thought to be intractable, um, like permanence, you know, for example, that's a, a very significant one. Um, you know, the possibility that in the future the forest might be cut down or it might burn down, um, you know, which are real possibilities. You know, nobody can deny that. Um, there are mechanisms, you know, at least within the market, to deal with those intractable issues, you know, you can have what are effectively insurance buffer pools of credits that are set aside um, such that if uh, in the future um, there were um, loss of permanence that that could be compensated from within the pool. So the answer is that, um, you know, we've learned from those, there are solutions and they can be implemented and they are being implemented in those regimes like the California cap and trade system, for example, um, does require measures to address the mistakes of the past. Ah, I'm going to pick up on uh, what you said about insurance there. Um, uh, I've got a question here which says, why not apply the global insurance value of assets at risk to issue NCS green bonds? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm not proposing this as an exclusive solution. Um, you know, there, there are other financial um, instruments and mechanisms available and green bonds are certainly one of them. Um, and, you know, we've seen examples of green bonds being issued at scale with some success. You know, Conservation International has done that. So, you know, this isn't the, if you like, the only game in town. But I think it is the only game in town that offers the opportunity to move at speed and scale. Um, carbon's actually quite easy to, to measure, biodiversity a lot less so. How can you actually set standards which in, encompass biodiversity and, and other difficult to measure sustainability factors? So, I mean, that is the very reason why I think we would, we would want to use carbon markets as the mechanism to, you know, drive um, NCS because carbon can be calibrated, it can be divided into units, it can be traded. Um, and then the biodiversity benefits come on the back of those carbon benefits, if you like. But I do think that standards for biodiversity can be developed within carbon markets. Um, and in fact, they are being and have been developed. I mean, there are various biodiversity specific standards 
um, like, for example, the CCBA, which is the, um, the, the Climate Community and Biodiversity Assurance um, Standard. Um, uh, there are other standards. Plan Vivo focuses on biodiversity standards. So I think the answer to your question is use carbon because it can be calibrated and traded as, as a unit, but build in standards for biodiversity benefits on the back of that, which can and have been developed. Mm. The UN's SDGs are a really good measure of, of, of progress, but uptake has been a bit lukewarm. How can they be given teeth? The SDGs? Mm. Oh gosh, um, that's a sort of a different question and, and, and a bigger question. Um, I, I think probably the answer though is the answer I gave on the slide with the dollar sign. Um, you know, for all of these issues that all, all sustainability issues in one way or another arise from the fact that we either don't value a public benefit at all um, or we undervalue it. And so my generic policy approach, and this is a slightly glib and high level answer to the question because the SDGs cover so many sort of very um, specific issues, is to find mechanisms for allocating an economic value to the activity. Because sadly, the only way that I think change is going to be affected on most of the SDGs quickly and at scale is by doing that. If we try to intervene directly to change behavior, um, as I said, with um, sort of moderating land use emissions, it tends to be costly and politically resisted and therefore too slow. Um, with a lot of these these issues, uh, you know, we tend to look at, at figures in tables, we tend to look at, uh, at, at graphs or, or, or financial flows. Ultimately, people live on the land where we are trying to impose these solutions. How does food production and, and other um, such issues fit into the NCS picture? Um, well, I, I think, you know, there is the potential either for food security or indeed biodiversity to be seen in conflict with um, NCS. Um, but there is also the potential, if you do it right, for them to act in synergy. So yes, if you start planting eucalyptus monocultures, you know, you are not going to produce food, you're not going to um, do any favours for biodiversity. Um, and that is why we need sustainability supply standards to make sure that the types of NCS that are grown um, have the effect of in supporting and reinforcing food production and biodiversity um, enhancement rather than damaging it. And that's why the price of NCS will go up if we have you know, strict standards in place because certain types of NCS would not be considered sustainable. But provided that we do have those standards in place, I think synergies can be created and where they can be created, then the practitioners of forestry and farming um, can actually expand and improve the sustainability of their, their livelihoods. And, and where that can be shown to be happening, those communities by and large are very enthusiastic supporters of it. 
and you know I've had personal experience of working with local communities, particularly in in Mexico in my case, um, where the degree of community involvement, engagement, and pride in what they were doing to preserve and enhance uh, their natural forests was really inspirational for me. So there can be conflicts, but I think they can be managed, and where they're managed, they can be very beneficial. I, I absolutely agree. I was in Costa Rica in the early 90s, and when you spoke to uh, children in particular, their ambition was to become a parataxonomist when they grew up. So beats being a train driver, I think. Um, now, I'm going to paraphrase a number of questions on a, a similar theme here, which is around voluntary offsets. Voluntary offsets are unregulated, and in some cases, they can be extremely questionable. So how can the sector be cleaned up? Um, yeah, I, well, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, and that's, first of all, why I absolutely insisted on the need for strict sustainability standards that are independently verified by um, a third party. Um, it's also why I suggested that it would be better um, to include these standards in regulated tax or cap and trade schemes rather than or as well as in the voluntary market. Um, but having said that, I don't think um, we're looking at an impossible task here. You know, I think, as I said, you know, there are solutions on the supply side. They can be incorporated in targets and the markets for voluntary carbon offsets must be, you know, regulated, if you like, at least on a voluntary basis. And there are plenty of examples where there is sort of quasi, there's a sort of a halfway house between regulated schemes and, um, and uh, uh, voluntary schemes. And, you know, Corsia, the airline uh, system that is being proposed for <clears throat> offsetting within the airline industry is one example of that. Um, and if, I, I mean, I would absolutely agree that if we are unable to insist on sustainability standards in the voluntary sector. And if the voluntary markets are unwilling or unable to ensure that sustainability of supply is guaranteed, um, then this won't and shouldn't happen on the scale that I'm talking about. But I think it can. Um, the dust has now well and truly settled on, on COP27. Um, what do you think the... Uh, what do you think of the, the, the outcomes from the process? Um, to be honest, very disappointing. Um, you know, in terms of the meat of it, i.e. meaningful commit, new commitments from governments around their NDCs um, or commitments for financing for climate, we saw little or no change. And there were some high level agreements made around coal, high-level agreements made around forestry, in fact. But what you saw was almost immediately after those agreements were announced, and they were very high-level agreements, sort of half a page, political declarations of, of intent, some of the major emitters or major deforesting countries almost immediately issued statements qualifying their support for these statements. I mean, so in that sense, 
it was disappointing. And even, even the UK uh, chair of the COP, uh, Alok Sharma, has recently said that the fragile success, I think he used the word fragile success of COP26, was in danger because a couple of months on and we're not seeing even the, you know, the relatively weak commitments that came out of it. Um, one thing that did come out of it was agreement on Article 6, um, <clears throat> which involves the question of rules for accounting when exchanges occur between countries. Um, I think, I mean, it's, it's whether you see that as a success or not is partly subjective, but it did at least agree on the principle that so-called corresponding adjustments would be necessary um, between countries that exchanged um, reductions under their NDCs. So that will at least partly deal with the question of double counting, um, and particularly in the land emissions sector, um, if it is followed according to the rules that were agreed. So maybe there's some reason for hope there. But in general, I, was, I personally was disappointed. Uh, right, hold on. This is quite a complex question, and I will try and um, <coughs> paraphrase it. Uh, I think the heart of it is how does discounting apply to the value uh, that we give to offsets? Okay, um, so I mentioned the option um, of having a buffer pool of credits for offsets and for NCS in particular to deal with the problem of permanence. If the market believes that offset credits are less valuable um, either than credits that are issued under regulated um, schemes or direct emissions reductions and removals within value chains. If there is a perception or a reality that that is the case, or a perception or a reality that offsets are less sustainable in some other way apart from carbon, then I think there is an argument, and I think the market will reveal this, and in fact the market has revealed this, that there will be a discounted value for offset credits relative to other forms of carbon reduction. And by and large, that's how the market works. If it perceives that a commodity is of lower value than an equivalent commodity, it will attach a lower value to it. Um, and particularly for CDM credits, the ones that you know, was, went so badly wrong in so many respects, you know, they have been trading recently until quite recently, a couple of years ago, at very, very low levels indeed, very high discounts to the value of carbon credits in, say, the EU emissions trading scheme. So whereas the EU emissions trading scheme, I, I haven't looked recently, but it was up around or over 50 um, quite recently. I'm not sure where it is today. I haven't looked. Um, but some CDM credits were trading well below $5. Um, so, you know, I think that's how the market would deal with it. But if over time offsets and NCS in particular can demonstrate that they are real and sustainable, then that 
differential should should reduce, which you know is a bad thing in the sense that it will drive up the price of offsets, um, but a good thing because it will drive up sustainability and and credibility. Excellent. Uh I'm afraid time has caught up with us, ladies and gentlemen. I know that some of you still got questions to ask. Uh, you can contact Paul through us. So if you email us, we will pass your, your questions on if you'd like to enter into correspondence with Paul. Um, and, we... and please do, please do. <laughs> uh, we have a recording of this presentation. We're going to be putting it online in the next couple of days. Uh, it just remains for me to thank Paul, uh, to thank the members of the FS Club for making today possible, and to thank you, the audience, for all your uh, wonderful questions. I would urge you to keep an eye on our forthcoming events for more webinars, which include uh, the future of finance on the 8th of February and can we trust AI on the 9th of February. We hope to see you again soon. Um, goodbye and uh, stay healthy. Thank you.